Six-year-old Kirsten was in a deep conversation with her grandmother about their church's sunrise service when she announced, Nana, I'm not going to that rise and shine thing. I'd have to get up too early. So on their way to the regular church Easter service, one of the parents was trying to describe to her and explain to her the purpose of Easter morning and that we are going there and part of our worship, we're going to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. And from the back seat, this little girl piped up and said, well, will he be in church today? And the answer is yes. He is risen. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb. Taking the spices that they had prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. This is the Word of God for the people of God. And so for a few moments, let's reflect on this account from Luke's Gospel of the Easter morning, resurrection morning. And there are three phrases I would like to focus in on this morning as we think about the meaning of Easter even now for ourselves in the 21st century. And the first is verse 5, and just the affirmation the women were terrified. Easter and anxiety seemed to go together. Of course they were terrified. Of course they were frightened. Of course they were filled with anxiety. They were, as the word literally means, quaking with fear. Another Easter and a global pandemic, and Easter comes anyway. Another Easter and our hearts are breaking as we watch the news over Ukraine. And yet Easter comes anyway. Another Easter and we watch the news concerned about inflation. And yet Easter comes anyway. None of that can stop God's resurrection power. It doesn't mean that life hasn't been difficult. It doesn't mean that we, grie we don't grieve the people that we have lost. It doesn't mean that we don't watch the news every day with concern. But in spite of all of that, Easter is still here. And our own experienced anxiety must be close to what it was like for those folks as they arrived that morning. The future is not what they thought it would be. And perhaps your future 
is not what you thought it would be as you were planning just a few years ago. The future they imagine, well, at once with a conquering Jesus, and then with a dead Jesus, and now with the Jesus who is risen. Even that can cause anxiety. Three years. Three years of traveling, three years of serving, three years of changing lives, three years of announcing the kingdom of God and the powers that be put its boot on his neck. And friends, the majority of them leave him, mocked, beaten, a disgraceful death. We should not be afraid to ask, what good did it do? We should not be afraid to ask, well, what really changed? Jesus comes out of the tomb and the Romans are still in charge on that first Easter. Why not go and show himself to the soldiers? Why not march into Pilate's palace and reveal himself to them? Why not have another parade, gather some more palm branches? We look at our own world. Some of the players may have changed, but we're still watching the war on the news and we're concerned about a pandemic and violence and hunger and genocide. What difference has it made? Some people think about the resurrection as, well, it's just a way to cheat death. He wasn't breathing and now he is. I I thought he was gone, but now he's back. Or is the resurrection more than that? Something bigger than that? God's love that will not let us go. Matthew Meyer Bolton is a former uh, professor at Harvard Divinity School. He likes to talk about the Bible. He's trying to get us to think differently about the Bible, not not as a book, but as a library. And, And you have a free library card, so you should regularly be going to that library and checking out a new book from that library and learning more about the history of God's people and learning more about yourself. And so this morning, let me check out one of those books and tell you a story, one that at first doesn't seem related to this morning at all, but I think in many ways that it is, and it goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 21. And they are worried and they are feeling fear and anxiety, and there has been a famine for three years. And David asks, what needs to happen to bring this famine to an end? And God says, the previous king, Saul, is responsible for this famine. He did a terrible thing, tried to wipe out the Gibeonites and attempted genocide. And for that, the famine will continue. And so David goes to the Gibeonites, and he asks them, what do I need to do to make things right? And the Gibeonites say, give us seven of Saul's sons so that we can kill them. And David does that. He takes two sons from a woman named Rizpah, a former concubine of Saul's implication is clear she has no power she has no status she is no threat to David and he takes five sons from Merab one of Saul's daughters five grandsons from Saul 
and he hands the seven of them over to the Gibeonites, and they take them, and they kill them, and they display them disgracefully. Violence, hatred, revenge, death. Nothing has changed. Saul is at fault. The Gibeonites are at fault. King David is at fault. There's only one person in that story, one character who brings us hope, one person who acts with dignity and humanity, and it's the woman, Rizpah. She goes to that hillside to be with those boys, the boys that she gave birth to, the boys that she nursed, the boys that she watched grow up. The other five, they weren't so different. She adopts them even in their death, and she sets up camp on the hillside, and she stays there day and night, protecting them, guarding their bodies, keeping the scavengers away, she does it from the fall harvest to the spring rains for six months. She stays there. When King David is told about what Rizpah is doing, he was ashamed. Her courage and humanity wakes up within himself and shames him into gathering the remains of Saul and giving them all a proper and appropriate burial. And only then, after Rizpah's loving work of dignity and honor, only then is the famine over. And it's the women who show up at the tomb on that morning. Is there any hope left in them? Are they there like Rizpah, as defenders of dignity and honor? Are they driven there by grief or by faith? We really don't know. We just know that in the dark, they show up when no one else does. These are the people who cannot accept that Yahweh has been replaced by Caesar or pharaoh, or a dictator, or a president, or a pandemic, or violence, or fear, or hatred, or hopelessness. As you read in Scripture, don't forget, Scripture that was written a long time ago in a patriarchal, male-dominated culture, don't forget to pay attention to the women in the story. Pay attention to the women. What hasn't changed with Easter? God's love, God's promise, God's presence, God as creator. I think we should be asking what begins at Easter. And so if we go back in time on that Passover day, when the Passover lamb is slaughtered that first time, the exodus isn't over, the exodus is just beginning. And on Passover, as Jesus dies, the story is just beginning. And it does remind us of the Exodus story. And it's the women in the story that make things happen. The mother of Moses and her daughter who take action 
take responsibility, who build a basket. And by the way, the Hebrew word for basket appears another time in, our, in that library. It's the word for the ark that is built when the great flood is coming. Midwives, Shipra and Pua, pay no attention. They are far more afraid of Yahweh and respectful of Yahweh than they are the words and the fear of Pharaoh. It's always those women out in front giving attention, putting things in motion, defenders of life. And in the gospel, there they are. Peter talks a good game, but when there's a threat, he's not there. Mark and John tell us that it's the women who look on. There as Jesus is dying, there at the cross. And the consistent announcement by Jesus about the arrival of the kingdom of God is a Christ-centered hope for this world, for the poor and the sick and the lonely and the depressed, for the slaves and the refugees and the hungry and the homeless, for the abused and the paranoid, the downtrodden, the despairing, for the whole wide, wonderful, wounded world. Good news indeed. Jesus has ushered in the beginning of a new creation. And we have, not, we have the privilege, we have the opportunity to model for the people around us what it means to live in the kingdom of God. A foretaste, a model of what it will one day be like. So we're free from sin. And we're free from guilt, which gives us freedom from hate and freedom from revenge. We have the privilege of living as kingdom of God people as Jesus modeled. And some days, like Rizpah, our actions are courageous and will shame those in power into more righteous actions. And sometimes, like the women who show up at the tomb, our acts our actions of faithfulness even when we are filled with fear, even as we are walking in darkness. And we are urged to remember. Remember how he told you. Remember what he told you. And Luke tells us they did. They remembered. Remembering is an important part of this biblical tradition, especially with Jewish people. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is zakar, remember. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember that you once were slaves. Remember that when you come into the promised land. Remember the days of old and consider them all of your generation. Remember these commands. Tie them on your forehead and tie them on your arm and tell your children when you get up in the morning. In this Hebrew word, zakar, it's often linked with another group of words that mean care and intentionality and caution and warning. We know something about that. Some warnings we ignore. Be careful, you're going to get pulled over. Slow down. Mm. Dry clean only. Mm. Remember, it's always been an important part of Judaism. If they let us forget what happens, it might happen again. So remember, they say, Easter is not an end. 
Remember that despite appearances, the acts of violence and anger and fear have changed nothing about who God is, and it will not change who we are as the people of God, that God's promises and covenants are sure and lasting, that God's love and justice will win out in the end, even in mockery and torture and death. The God of life and love prevails. And because of the resurrection, we get to live differently. We're not afraid to be generous because we trust in God's generosity. We don't have to fear forgiving other people because we have been forgiven. We don't have to always have our own way because we now know what it's like to bless other people and to help them in their lives. We don't have to act out in anger even when someone cuts us off on I-40 because we know we follow the one who leads us beyond temporary, the, the temporary moment or temporary emotions. We get to march up that hill like Rizpah and remind our neighbors how God really intended life to be. And because we are modeling for them God's intentions for the future, that God's justice truly reigns. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to be part of the answer to the very prayer that Jesus prayed. One more phrase. They told this to the disciples. to the eleven, to all the rest. In Mark's gospel, the angel tells the women, don't be alarmed, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of them to Galilee. Can we hear that in our anxiety? Can we hear that in our fear that Jesus has already gone ahead of them, that Jesus has already gone ahead of us? In your future, the future you can't yet imagine, the future you're having trouble embracing, the future you're having trouble facing, this is the Easter hope that our future is with the resurrected Jesus. Our feet are free and our tongues are loose to speak resurrection hope and truth and a future that's confident and clear so keep going keep going and keep moving towards Jesus if you can't fly run if you can't run walk and if you can't walk then crawl but keep moving toward Jesus Easter teaches us that the future for God's people is often filled with surprises Years ago at John Hopkins University, there was a sociology professor who gave a group of students an assignment. Their assignment was to go out, um, to go out into the poorest areas of the city there in Baltimore and to interview a group of 200 boys. And on the basis of the, the, what they discover in those conversations, in those interviews, he asked them to predict 
their future. A group of students were shocked at what they discovered, partially because they had never lived in those kinds of conditions with those kinds of people around them, with those kind of problems in their very homes and neighborhoods. And so they came back, and one of their predictions, the students estimated that 90% of them, 90% would end up in prison. 25 years later, that same sociology professor spoke to another class and he asked them to research and to find as many of those original 200 boys and to discover what may have happened to them. They tracked down about 180 of them and out of that 180 that they found, only four ended up in prison. So they dug a little deeper. Of that 180, they discovered one common event with 100 of them. And her name was Miss O'Rourke, a school teacher. They tracked her down in a nursing home in Memphis, Tennessee. And they interviewed her about her influence, about the way she affected their lives, about the way she helped them. Her response, all I did was love every one of them. We are resurrection people. We are not afraid of the future. Will you pray with me? This morning you may be here and you're one of those people who need to experience a life-transforming kind of love. You've looked in a lot of places. You've questioned a lot of things. And something is still missing. May we suggest to you this morning that you become a follower of the risen Christ. May we suggest to you this morning that you pray the prayer that so many of us have prayed where we are honest with the God of all creation and we say, I can't do this on my own. I invite you into my life. I welcome into my life your grace and love and your forgiveness. And I really do want to follow you and be your disciple. Or perhaps you have prayed that prayer a long time ago and somewhere along the way you lost your direction and your focus. We invite you to come back home. We invite you to find that place of priority in your life where you are asking on a daily basis, this is your life, Lord. This life is your life. What are we going to do with it today? So here are prayers, O oh God. Prayers of fear and anxiety. Prayers of hope. Prayers of gratitude and love this morning. We thank you for the new life that you have promised to us. And we lean into you this day. Boldly looking into the future you hold for us. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand as we sing together? Amen.